the amount of backlash is going to be intense. Like it, it just feels unachievable. I feel mm. like the Bible Belt would just straight up secede from the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fine, get rid of them. <laughs> Welcome to episode 30 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. So, how is everyone this week? Are we all alive from and not infected by corona? Not infected, no. Thankfully, I have remained healthy. <laughs> A little sad over the news, but that's okay. Yeah, we'll be fine. Just stay away from people. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh, CBC did say that uh, Corona has claimed more lives in China than SARS did worldwide or something. Maybe if I'm remembering that correctly. Correct, yes. Uh, 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 The infection rate, sorry, the number of people infected is also higher. But I wouldn't panic because really when you look at the percentage of deaths, it's actually lower than SARS. And Mm. it's just, the, the reason why things are more infectious is because they actually, if something doesn't kill you, you have the ability to spread it more widely. So the greater the infectiousness usually means it hasn't been able to kill a lot of people because the survivors have just continued to spread the virus. Ah. I read though that they have, they think they have a treatment now out of like a failed Ebola treatment. That doesn't sound likely. <laughs> There's really completely different viruses. So. No, but it was a it was something they they uh, tried to come up with Ebola for Ebola, like a treatment, a drug, but it didn't work on Ebola. And then they tried it on Corona recently, and because it's gone through all of that safety testing with Ebola way back when, they could start testing now. So I've heard that they have a treatment that's possible. I would give it a very low probability. Cor- remember, Corona is actually. A- the same type of virus that could give you a cold. Like there are many coronaviruses that give you a cold. And I mean, we don't have anything that fights colds right now. So, well, um, but I wanted to maybe start off with some follow-up. Uh, in our last episode, we talked about Facebook. And I'm pretty sure this is what happened. We released our podcast and Mark Zuckerberg heard our podcast and released this new feature on Facebook. So uh, essentially, Facebook now has what is called the off Facebook activity settings. So to get into this setting, if you use your Facebook app, uh, if you remember at the very bottom right uh, of Facebook, there's this like hamburger menu. If you click on that, you can scroll down to your settings and then you can, in your settings, there's something called off Facebook activity. And when you go in there, you can actually manage uh, the data that gets transferred between Facebook and other third parties. So there's a very Mm -hmm. handy button there called Clear History. And when you click it, it will remove everything that has been shared to other third parties. And you can also turn off any future sharing of data to third parties. And I think you'll be surprised when you go into the app to see where your data has been going because I was very surprised by <laughs> essentially you know, where all my data is being transferred to and shared amongst websites I've visited and, and even like postings I've seen. I, I, don't, I just don't remember ever acknowledging you know, a certain uh, Facebook page and giving them permission to kind of uh, utilize my data. So I think it was, it's a very uh, convenient and useful tool that's on Facebook now. Any nefarious or scandalous ones you want to tell us about? Uh, no. <laughs> not, not on recording. No, they don't exist? Or... <laughs> I will neither confirm nor deny. That's interesting. I'm going to go in today and look at that and see where my, where my data is going because I want to get rid of that. So now, now, even though I say clear history, it still already went to that third party it has, but uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to reutilize it because the third party always needs to tap into Facebook oh, to, okay. to okay. get that history. So, uh, yeah, just clear your history. It's not a completely blank slate because I'll, I'm sure some other third party hackers have already gotten our data, but at least this 
could give you a little bit more comfort in knowing in the future, there will be no more data being shared to third parties. So uh, for today's topic, uh, it's February right now. So February traditionally is when we celebrate, uh, not celebrate, but uh, remember that this is uh, Black History Month. And uh, especially in Canada, um, there, it was only, at least it feels very recent that we've only started acknowledging Black History Month. And kind of the history around that was Jean, uh, sorry, Jean uh, Augustine, who was a politician and a uh, social activist. Uh, she was the first African-Canadian uh, woman to be elected into the uh, House of Commons and also uh, was the first African-Canadian woman to be appointed in the federal cabinet as well. So she immigrated to Canada in 1960 and uh, was elected in 1993. And only in 1995 uh, did she propose a motion in Parliament to recognize February as Black History Month, uh, which passed unanimously. So. Um, it, it just feels pretty. So I know it feels recent, right? Yeah. I, I, in my in my mind, I was thinking this must have been done in what the seventies, the eighties, something like that. But no, I was I was a kid when this happened. You um, would think that, like for the nineties, that's how long it took to have a woman a a woman of color elected into parliament. Like that's a long time before anything happened. And. When we think about the history of, of African Canadians in Canada, uh, one really good example, I don't know if this is showing on TV, I don't have cable so I can't really see, but um, I know uh, the Canadian government has been, or had created an ad around Viola, uh, sorry, uh, Viola Desmond, I don't know if you know her. Maybe she got on a bill, right? Yes, she did. Yeah. I don't use like I don't use cash. I know that's the other problem. I don't. Use... I don't have cable. And I don't have cash. <laughs> Me too. I was like, I don't have either, so I don't. I I, I haven't seen this in real life, <laughs> but the government just needs to catch up to like modern day life. Exactly with Facebook ads. Yeah, why are there Facebook ads? I would totally be there, like instead of cable ads. Like I don't have cable. Yeah, so I'll I'll go back and time in terms of uh, why she was such an important figure in Canada's history. Um, she was a independent businesswoman uh, in the hair and beauty industry, and she had a very successful business in Halifax. And in 1946, uh, she went to see a movie at the Roseland Theatre in New Glasgow, uh, Nova Scotia. But she went in uh, to purchase the ticket uh, however, she realized, or at least the cashier told her, that the theater was segregated. She could afford paying the more expensive ticket, which is uh, not on the balcony, but at the front of the theater. And she had the money because she is successful and wealthy. Well, not, maybe not wealthy, but she's successful. She could pay for her seat. However, they refused to sell her the ticket for the front of the theater. Yeah, I remember this story. I remember that she asked to pay the higher price so that she could stay yep. where she was. Yep. Yeah. And so she wasn't allowed to buy these tickets, so she did buy the ticket to the, the balcony where all uh, the other uh, black Canadians are located. And she refused to sit there. She sat in the front where she had wanted to uh, sit. And she was escorted out of the theater and uh, essentially sent to jail for the night. And the rationale for that was she was trying to evade the tax, uh, the tax difference, and essentially uh, the fee for the front of the theater. So she was refused to be sold these tickets and then charged for uh, sitting where she's not supposed to be sitting. So this led to a court battle, and she... Her story was kind of publicized also by the first uh, independent newspaper that served, that was black owned in Canada. And uh, that really kind of spurred a lot of discussions around segregation. And yeah, so it wasn't until uh, 1954 when segregation was 
legally ended in Nova Scotia. So it took almost 10 years from that event to actually uh, eliminate segregation, legally at least. So, so that's, uh, things like this don't move very fast. It's, it's pretty slow. I find stories like this really interesting. So stories like this one and like uh, Rosa Parks of people who decide this is something very small. I want to sit here. I'm choosing to sit here and I'm not moving. And it's, it's a conscious action versus I think when a lot of people talk about stories like this or stories like Rosa Parks, they say, oh, she was tired and she just wanted like she just wanted to sit there, whatever. She made a conscious action to sit there. And there was a whole movement behind Rosa Parks. Uh, and the reason she sat there was because of that. So I think that we have to remember like, oh, it's not just because she was like, oh, today I want to see this movie here. She was like, this is where I deserve to sit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I've heard that narrative before of they've just had enough in their individual day-to-day life. And so they just decided they were going to sit here or choose this theater seat as opposed to a planned out deliberate action and a move towards social change. Mm-hmm. It almost diminishes the actions that these people are taking oh, absolutely and especially women of of color especially because they're women like oh it's just because you know they were tired or whatever you know like these are women who are strong women who are making a step towards change and i think that we should acknowledge that yeah it's yeah. writing a story about how it's a selfish action as opposed to a deliberate political action which it actually is mm-hmm. yep. so this brings us to the topic of reparations. And I think one of the interesting things that came, is coming out right now, uh, especially in the U.S., where uh, as part of the democratic, uh, democratic um, uh, process to select their leader, uh, the topic of reparations have come up a few times. And there was an article in The Atlantic that was uh, published a few years ago uh, called The Case for Reparations. And it was a very interesting article where it laid out essentially why there is a potential case for reparations in terms of, again, as we kind of think back in history, there are, obviously there are topics around slavery and then the more maybe more recent uh, topic around the wealth gap between uh, white Americans and black Americans. Um, so, for example, one example, the median household income of, sorry, not income, but the median uh, kind of household wealth uh, between whites and blacks. Whites would be about 171,000 uh, versus blacks at 17,000. So huge disparity there from just from the median uh, worth. So the the article was very interesting because it laid down kind of the history of how did this happen, essentially. I think we all generally know the history of slavery, but essentially over time, property, wealth was destroyed in the U.S., which has essentially, if we know anything about compounding interest, if you invest a dollar a hundred years ago, you're probably going to be a millionaire today. And it's just this generational wealth that has been eroded because land was taken away from black Americans. And there's a topic of, uh, do you guys know what redlining is in yes. the U.S.? Yeah. So back in the day when, a, when someone wanted to purchase property or purchase a house, uh, they would go to a mortgager and that mortgager could insure the mortgage. Uh, however, they would specifically redline certain neighborhoods where they wouldn't insure those mortgages. And usually those, uh, those communities tend to be black communities. And that's how they also were able to keep black people out of, those, out of the white communities because they would essentially prevent black people from buying property where whites were located. So uh, over time, their ability to own land, own property, generate wealth diminished while uh, white communities were able to prosper. I read a news article from NPR about how in Chicago, a lot of families weren't able to procure a mortgage uh, because of this redlining. 
And so uh, like the federal housing, they wouldn't insure these people's mortgages. So they would have to go to private lenders. And so these private lenders gave these contracts so that you don't get the deed of the house until you've fully paid it off. So these um, African-Americans would pay a large down payment. So the lenders essentially bought, kind of scared these white owners out of their houses, saying like, oh, you're too close to the, the black neighborhoods and stuff. And so they would buy cheap and then they would sell to these African-Americans at a really high price. So they would inflate it um, often by like 84%. And then the African-Americans would have to pay a high down payment. And then they wouldn't even own the home. They would essentially be renting it. They're paying these mortgage payments, but they don't get the deed until they've paid off the house completely. And so if they miss a mortgage payment or if the lender just decides to get rid of them, then they just drop them and they evict them and they bring in somebody else. So it was this weird scheme that was happening in Chicago that just tricked all of these African-Americans out of housing and completely took that away from them. And I think this is really important when we look at America and North America as well, about how owning land is wealth in North America. And sort of that is, you know, the more land you own, the more wealthy you are, and you kind of are able to establish yourself and your wealth that way. I think that land is so important. And uh, thinking back to uh, uh, before this, the Civil War in the U.S., uh, some s slaves were given land and then were taken away after Abe Lincoln was assassinated. So mm -hmm. and his, uh, his vice president, was that Andrew Johnson? Jackson? Johnson? One of sure. the decided that he would uh, renege on all of Lincoln's promises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they were going to give 40 acres and a mule. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, I remember that. So this brings to the topic of, you know, should we consider reparations for some of this uh, uh, destruction wealth that has occurred because of uh, obviously some racist policies that have been implemented and actions. Before that, I'm curious, the, uh, the story of the, the redlining and the, the mortgages, is that, that definitely sounds like something post-slavery, post-emancipation. Yep. How recent has redlining been going on, do you know? Uh, if I recall, it was in the 70s. For Chicago, it was the 50s and 60s. I really feel like this uh, goes a long way to deconstructing one of the, probably the most cited argument against reparations, which is that it's a relocation of the injustice, that you're expecting people to pay for, pay reparations who weren't actually slave owners themselves, and they claim they had nothing to do with it. But clearly the practices of segregation and the, the vestiges of the act of slavery are still continuing. The article, Case for Reparations, the, the thesis here was, it's not about slavery per se. It's really around, uh, there has been a theft that has occurred. Actually, you know, if you kind of think about it from a legal standpoint, if something is stolen from you, you know, you should probably get some compensation from the person that has stole uh, or your property or whatever that might be. So really, the, the argument is not about trying to compensate for mm -hmm. someone's actions 200 years ago and you know, forcing the descendants to pay for actions that their, their ancestors did. But it's around, you know, there, there was a theft in wealth. It has continued and is still continuing. So the question is, you know, how do we uh, address this uh, issue of theft? Mm -hmm. And like reparations is not a new concept either. We've done reparations so many times in the past with things like Holocaust survivors. I read an article about how France is, is giving reparations to its citizens up to $400,000. Uh, each because they transported all of these Jewish people to the concentration camps. And so we've done it for Holocaust survivors. We've done it for uh, people who survived Japanese internment camps. We've done it for uh, First Nations people here in Canada who survived the residential schools. 
Like this is not a concept that's new that you know is is very foreign to us and and so I feel like we've just kind of ignored uh slavery and and the African American struggle and I'm not sure why that is exactly. And maybe to go give a little bit of uh context especially from a Canadian perspective in the Indian uh, residential schools when we did pay reparations uh just the history of it, the government passed the Indian Act in uh, 1876, and uh, and these residential schools were set up in co- cooperation with uh, churches, with uh, Roman Catholic and Protestant uh, churches to establish these schools to essentially educate slash assimilate um, Oh, it's definitely assimilation, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I I'm trying to put it in in everyone's terms. Oh, neutral no, terminology. A hundred percent was assimilation <laughs> wow. and like extermination of native people. Yeah. So uh, these schools were set up, uh, and there were over uh, one hundred fifty thousand indigenous indigenous youth who attended these schools between uh, eighteen eighty and nineteen ninety. So again, very recent, and it was only in in two thousand eight. Did Prime Minister Stephen Harper stand in the House of Commons to acknowledge this? And uh, that they set up essentially uh, the reparations that would be uh, paid out. So, so far, $1.6 billion has been paid out in terms of a common experience, meaning if you have been to a residential school, you were compensated. And another $3.2 billion uh, was paid out for independent assessment. So, the certain uh, people had to struggle with the outcomes of uh, sexual abuse in the schools uh, and whatnot. So those were also uh, given compensation. And commemoration of, of what happened was part of uh, the, the uh, reparations as well, along with setting up the Truth and uh, Reconciliation uh, Commission, which I, one thing that was uh, pretty sh- shocking for me was only uh, last September, the the committee actually documented uh, 2,800 children who died in their residential schools, with another 1,600 children who remain unnamed, so they don't know who they were. Mm-hmm. If you don't know anything about residential schools, you should definitely look it up. They're horrific. Uh, a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse, a lot of neglect. Children were torn from their families. Uh, they were punished for their culture and representing their culture, and it's just it's just so awful. And and so like are the point is the point you're making that maybe it's a bit more recent, and that's kind of why we we have looked at the residential schools and given reparations. No, I, oh. I think that that was just to kind of put into context that okay. in. You know, we have examples of reparations. That's this right. is a very Canadian example, and the, so it does still bring up the question. You know, what's really stopping us from paying reparations? You highlighted something that also comes up frequently in the arguments against reparations, and that's the uh, the cost. I think you cited something in the billions of dollars mm-hmm. for reparations for residential schools. A lot of uh, Antagonists to the reparations argument say that it'll be prohibitively expensive to compensate black Americans and pegging up the cost more at three to six trillion dollars as opposed to a more manageable sum of money. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing I can think of as well is, uh, for example, of the residential schools, there's enough history that you can go back to actually figure out who was in these schools. Whereas if you talk about slavery, for example, figuring out your descendants and what you would be paying, who would get the money. I think there's there's a logistical issue, but I often don't really hear that argument. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just for me, but I don't often hear that argument. I always hear some other arguments like, uh, you know, well, it was my descendants that did that, yeah. not me, et cetera. Those are the more the more common ones. But people who do delve into the logistics, they have to think about, are we imagining this as a lump sum check? I think the way to deconstruct the, the gargantuan cost is to imagine it in different forms of reparations, not just passing out a check to everyone, but maybe 
rebuilding the infrastructure in certain communities that have been neglected, investing government funds that way. Or, you know, I have to put my own little slant in here. Maybe we could try a basic income experiment specifically geared to those who have suffered injustices. You totally stole my point. I was going to bring up, I was totally going to bring up the freedom dividend again. Well, I beat you to it this time. I think there's going to be a challenge, especially when you kind of uh, uh, see our current political environment. There's going to be a lot of opposition uh, to this. Um, and I was, and so for example, the reason why I actually um, uh, started reading this article, The Case for Reparations, is because of a TV show, The Watchmen, and that TV show was spurred on by this article, The Case for Reparations. And uh, the writers, the writers are a mixed group of white and uh, black women, and the writers really want to take a, make a point in the TV show that there's going to be a lot of resistance to reparations, and there are unintended consequences for uh, by having reparations because there will be a segment of people who will hate the idea, and the the big question is not only you know. Should we pay reparations? But the, the the other big question is, how do we deal with the people that oppose reparations? Because the backlash is going to be, could be intense. And that's kind of the whole, one of the premise of the show is trying to uh, illustrate the backlash. I have to watch this show because that is one of the points I got hung up on regarding reparations is how do we avoid the embittering of a population who are going to continue clinging to the argument that these slave owners had nothing to do with them. In fact, some even argue that their labor, their ancestors' labor was cheapened by the existence of slavery and that they were paid less due to the existence of slaves. And so they are owed some sort of reparation. That's why I like the idea of the freedom dividend because, yes, there, to me, there's the right thing to do. The right thing to do should be we pay reparations, right? Then there's also the practical thing to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where I'm wrestling with in terms of there's the right thing to do, but then there's also the practical thing to do. And practical meaning uh, how do we essentially create a win-win situation for people without causing this backlash that could potentially happen? Mm-hmm. Intensifying segregation probably. Mm-hmm. There is an argument that it would divide the country further, and then you don't get the same political coalitions that you need to actually make a difference politically in African American people's lives. Because you know, for example, if uh, the Democrats were to impose reparations through an executive order, the amount of backlash is going to be intense. Like it, it just feels unachievable. I feel like the Bible Belt would just straight up secede from the United States. (laughs) I mean, fine. Get rid of them. (laughs) It's like Quebec. Quebec always threatens to, like, leave us. Well, then fine. Go. (laughs) Yet they never do. They come crawling back. Right, because it's not logical, because you can't actually do it. So, like, yeah, fine. Bible Belt, get out. (laughs) We'll see how you last on your own. It's like children who threaten to run away. Like, <laughs> see how long you can get, manage out there. We'll see. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. <laughs> I like my analogy to be honest. Where are you going with this? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Just picturing this little Bible Belt guy with his little sack over his shoulder. I'm leaving. <laughs> this Bible Belt child. <laughs> little white child, like, with a little stick. <laughs> Let's bring it back in. Okay. <laughs> so, what are do you guys have any other, I guess, feedback from uh, things that you've researched in terms of what are potential problems we might encounter? Can I just say before we move on, like I think my biggest concern with the division would be the guns because, like, I don't know, I don't know if it's a stereotype, but people in the South have a lot more guns, and I would worry about another civil war breaking out because. Tensions right now are even just so high that if we gave reparations, it might just sort of put people over the edge. Yep, I agree. <laughs> I would. Sorry to anyone in the South, but I feel like the only reason they have guns is because they know they lost. 
the last time. So. I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. I would very much like to discount the possibility of that, but the amount of gun violence that exists even now in the States, I, I don't know. I don't think it should deter us. I should be clear in that. Like, I don't think we should be deterred from doing reparations because we're afraid of guns. But, like, I think it's a real concern that, you know, another civil war could break out over something like that. But I think that's why this is a problem that needs to be solved from a more practical matter versus a principle matter. Mm. So we, we all might have a general feeling like it's the right thing to do, but it still goes back to there is a pretty large segment of the population that do not agree with this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, th- I think it's pretty evident when the Democrats tried to put in a bill to even study reparations to study it and it was still killed wasn't that bill brought in maybe like 30 years ago or something or um i know they tried to introduce one recently in uh, 2019 yeah it was killed like they just didn't even want to look at it or study it which to me it does raise the question of why would you not even want to look at it as if even looking at the potential problem or the solution threatens the Republicans, though. They are good at uh, hiding from findings that they expect will be damaging to them and their party's platform. There is uh, another argument. This was actually listed on Wikipedia as one of the main arguments, which I, given how flimsy it is, I found that hard to believe, but here it is. It's called uh, Comparative Utility, and it argues that African Americans who were brought from Africa to America now have a much better life because they exist in America than they would have if they had remained in Africa and the slave trade had not existed. Have they been to some African countries? Because I have. Not like they are a (laughs) (laughs) bull. You have to bleep that out now. (laughs) Oh, damn it. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's, there are pretty well-off countries in Africa. It's not like every country there is, you know, a complete disaster. And not only that, it's like, skirting around the issue of the imperialist presence that had and continues to exist in Africa. It's not like they're not doing well because they've just not developed as quickly on their own. It's they're deliberately being pushed down and exploited. And so to make that argument is so thin in my mind. Yeah. And I think that's (laughs) the thing too, is like we have this idea in our head that like Africa all of Africa is just a bunch of tribes and they're wearing like no clothes they're just wearing some leaves or something and they're like dancing around a fire in their little huts or whatever like it's not that's not Africa like we have Johannesburg which is a beautiful exactly and first of all Africa is not a country you know it's a it's a yeah yeah yeah. I remember (laughs) I mean there are a lot of people that think Africa is like a country (laughs) and it's all homogenous and it's the same yeah Yeah, like they have some beautiful metropolis cities, but definitely your point of how it's been so colonialized and and people have, you know, the even still like the African American or not African American, they're just I don't know what the correct term is, is the black people in Africa the are native, still yeah, very population. oppressed. Yeah, the native population are still very oppressed by the white people who've come in and taken all of the wealth. Mhm. And unfortunately, some of those countries have adopted the worst parts of the British colonies. So, for example, just driving on the wrong side of the road. That's my biggest pet peeve. So. <laughs> is that the worst thing you can think about with Not colonialization? Not where I thought you were going like with that. <laughs> it is the worst. <laughs> okay. They should have adopted other things. Great. <laughs> I'm trying to keep you on your toes here. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, other than the, the flimsy, the legal argument against reparations being slavery was legal at the time. Those are the, the main ones that I was able to find. And I, I don't even really know what to do with that argument. Of well, slavery I, was legal. Okay, okay. but <laughs> the, the Holocaust was legal. Yeah. It was legal to stone people to death. At one point in yeah. our law history. But we don't do that anymore because it's barbaric. It's disgusting. Why, like? But maybe this does create a, a real hurdle for 
legal professionals who are trying to find a footing to make the argument for reparations that... I, I think, sure, from a legal standpoint, because you know, so much time has passed, okay, uh, sure, there's, may, you, there's maybe not a strong legal stance to stand on, but at the same time, I, I think there's been pretty good examples in the past where reparations have been able to help people move on, again, you know, to uh, reconcile mm -hmm. some of these traumatic events that have happened in the past and really to help kind of uh, unify people and kind of help move things along to, to bring to some, a better future. some closure through yeah. restorative justice. Yeah. At the end of the day, humans are, humans always need closure and uh, I feel like I'm different because I don't really care if, I don't know, I, I feel like I can get over things, but I, I know in general people really need that closure and they need to have a sense of justice that has occurred. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I'll link, we will link to the podcast I was listening to recently, but it was about a family who survived the Japanese internment camps and they got reparations from it. And they, the one person in the family said like, just the money alone would not have made them feel okay. They needed that apology with it. So the apology that came with it really actually meant something. And then the government putting money behind it meant they were serious. Mm -hmm. So I think like you need more than just money. It's not just money. Like the, the idea that this is just money that we're giving away to people and then they'll feel better is, is not, is not the entirety. We, we need to take a holistic approach to this, I think. The other view that a government could potentially take is uh, if you kind of took what was stolen and applied a inflation metric on it, I mean, it's going to end up being trillions, right? It will it be should, in the it'll, trillions. It'll be in the trillions. Certainly. Now, if the government maybe had a different perspective of, well, if we pay out a certain amount, you're actually getting a deal if you can pay a certain amount uh, with a apology. I mean, that's the other perspective to potentially take because the longer you wait, the higher the compensation is. An apology and, you know, I think it's a really strong effort towards desegregation is investing in building up underprivileged communities, you know, the, the ghettoized areas that happen to be, contain a strong racial component to them. If you were to uh, encounter someone from the South who really hates the idea of reparations, like what would you actually say to them? To try to get them on board. What do you think is the best argument? Well, I'd have to be very measured in how I did not assign personal blame to them because that just takes it right into their wheelhouse of not me, not my ancestors, even if it was their ancestors, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> Alabama? <laughs> Interesting note on that. Slave owners were paid reparations for the loss of their slave property, but that's kind of a separate point from the question we're attempting to answer. Um, how would I compel someone to see reparations, not as an attack on them, but as a way forward and a way to bring people together? I think one of the arguments against reparations is that it's sort of a monetary rep uh, reparation from current taxpayers who had nothing to do with what happened in the previous governments, right? Uh, from generations ago. So how would you approach somebody like that who said, like, it's not my fault this happened generations ago. I wasn't involved in that. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I think that's a really tough argument. I feel like both these questions are directed at me right now. <laughs> we're, hoping, we're, we're hoping you would solve the problem. Yeah, I did not come prepared Sorry, to, where are your answers? <laughs> to bring definitive answers. I mean, it is a tough, it is a tough conversation to have. I don't know that I would be able to have it. Just because, you know, it's it's hard to explain that, you know, we have an ob obligation to these people that we have oppressed. And it just seems like they ignore the emotional side of it. And and maybe that's not the way to approach the conversation. Like you said, Kenny, maybe we need it more logistical of, like, here's some data points of how much... Um, African-Americans have lost because of this. It could be derailed so quickly and so easily by falling into prejudice and prejudicial opinions. I think maybe a subtler, I don't think it deserves a subtle approach, but for a logistical moving the conversation forward, 
trying to get somebody on board, I would take a, a subtle approach and say, we need to invest in the human capital and invest in the infrastructure capital to, to raise these areas up and make America a greater place to live because these communities are suffering. Maybe there was a, a history that you don't necessarily want to acknowledge to the fullest extent that has contributed to this, but the point is we want America to get better and to bring it up. Yeah. And we, the dominant race, are benefiting off of that slavery that happened, right? So so it's just a continuous like beneficiary that we've had um, that we've been able to oppress these people. That's what capitalism is, really, is just like benefiting off of the people that have been oppressed you know what i mean so you know we're benefiting off of these african-american people not being able to attain education and then get those really high-paying jobs that we want right mm -hmm. so yeah it's so hard so that's why i i'm leaning towards from a again from a practical solution it's really essentially in my mind paying reparations without actually calling it or paying reparations. Yeah, <laughs> so, which I hate at the same time because it's like a failure to acknowledge what is actually owed. But, and yeah, but I also cause. think, but I think we have to play the long game here in terms yeah. of, you know, it's, uh, we want to move forward to a better world and to, again, find justice and similar to how, you know, segregation in Canada took 10 years, and then it took us another, what, 50 plus years before we got uh, Black History Month and all that. I mean, I think it's going to take a long time to get people on board with reparations and uh, finally kind of acknowledging it and equalizing the various populations. But it, I, I think it, for me, it has to be more of a practical approach because it goes back to you're never going to be able to convince the person from the South mm -hmm. that really hates the idea of reparations. There's the risk of, at least at this point, civil war. <laughs> and we have to get to a point where we want to continue to move forward and get us to a point where maybe, maybe in 10 years we'll be at a point where people can start acknowledging what has happened and we can continue to kind of close the gap, essentially. So you think that we do reparations under a different name and then maybe in 10 years we can apologize for slavery? Is that the idea? Because like, because otherwise it's just you're just giving the money without the apology and then are we getting to that cultural change that we need? I don't know when we would be ready for apology. And I, I wouldn't like set any timelines. Obviously, the sooner the better. But I, I think from, again, from a practical standpoint, we know... We know that we have an immediate problem. Well, the immediate problem is there's this wealth gap. And it just seems like something that we got to, if you were to kind of prioritize what needs to happen first in terms of what is more urgent, I would say the solving the wealth gap issue is probably higher than the apology. And then I think it, it's just more of a prioritization ranking and trying to figure out how to close a gap without calling it reparations and without causing civil unrest. And I know it's not ideal because, you know, we, we want to do the right thing. And this is not the right thing, but it's the practical thing. It's the thing that might have a, a higher chance of succeeding without causing more problems along the way. For I me, yeah, that. for me, like, I find it's more important to at least progress than to try to hold us back because we don't really fully get what we need or what we want because it's the right thing to do. And, I, and I, I'm just thinking practically, there's no way, for example, the Republicans are ever going to apologize. There's no way. <laughs> Certainly not this administration. Yeah. Oh, that kind of brought me down a little bit. I was feeling a little bit more hopeful before <laughs> tempered... Uh... Wait, give a hopeful story. Tempered reality. <laughs> I mean, we have some more reasons why people might not want reparations. Um, That's not hopeful. <laughs> no, no, no. But like, we gotta but we keep can shut going. them down. We have to end on a hopeful note. We can't just have like our hopeful note now, and then we just have to go back down again. <laughs> so we'll, we'll tear apart these reasons against, and that'll bring us back to a high note again. Sure. And then I'll give you a good story, I promise. Okay. Wait until the end of the episode. We'll have a good-ish story. I'm ready, Sherry. <laughs> I don't promise great, but like good-ish. <laughs>
Okay, so like another reason against it may insult many African Americans by putting a price tag on their ancestral suffering. How much do you give somebody who had ancestors who were enslaved and then died or pulled away from their families? Like, like how can you put a price tag on something like that? Well, I would imagine that something greater than the nothing they're receiving right now would still be appreciated to an extent. So are we imagining that it would just be a highly unsatisfied population if you did cut them a check of however much and they received it and said felt they were being insulted by this i should preface that all of my reasons against came uh from when uh mitch mcconnell said that that bill wouldn't even touch the senate floor of the study so um these are all Republican reasons against. <laughs> I doubt Republicans are worried about African Americans being insulted by giving them money. So <laughs> I, I will, well, don't look well, at me for that one. There is a data point. Uh, I, I don't have the article in front of me right now, but there was a prominent NFL player who was African American who did poo-poo the idea of reparations. Did you? Do you have that? I have it. Okay. Yeah. Um, he said, what strangers did 200 years ago has nothing to do with us because that has nothing to do with our DNA. And so I had a few points on that because, because I thought this, the wording was a little bit strange of like saying specifically DNA. So I don't know if he was addressing DNA literally, but I wanted to sort of think about how DNA changes, uh, because there have been a lot of studies in epigenetics that have come out to say Things like having childhood trauma or not receiving affection as an infant and even poverty can have an effect on how our DNA represents as as we grow up uh, because our body is editing our genes. You know, you don't always represent certain genes and that effect could have, you know, cognitive cognitive effects as well. So uh, there was a study in 2019 from Northwestern University that looked at children born into poverty and found that their genes differed from those who were born into wealth. And they even looked at later in life, wealthy children who had fallen into poverty as adults and their genes hadn't uh, differed that much. So it was about childhood when your genes are kind of developing and deciding which ones are being edited that that you're getting those effects so thinking about how african-american children were born into slavery like this happened for 200 years we're talking slavery happened 200 years so how many generations of people were slaves just born as slaves and had their genes edited because of that because they were receiving you know uh potentially neglect, physical abuse, emotional abuse, mm -hmm. sexual abuse, those sorts of things, um, that there is DNA changes that were happening. So to think about how that compounds over time, I just think that's really interesting to say, like, it has nothing to do with our DNA now. And yet, it could potentially have had that effect already. You just don't know it, obviously. Uh, I, the to add some color to that, I think it's also it's about kind of how your genes are expressed per se. So uh, your your genes are pretty much defined when you know sperm and egg come together. But uh, yeah. how so so there's a concept of kind of like a genetic trauma that gets kind of passed down through generations, and it's uh, you know over time you know as uh, this trauma uh, either kind of expressed um, through your genes or could be even influenced by your environment. So uh, when we think about how uh, disenfranchised people are exposed to maybe more dangerous substances, thinking about Flint, Michigan, etc. Or so, nutrition, yeah, things like or that. Or nutrition. And this is how the, uh, the damage to genetic materials that need to be passed on to children get impacted. So the kind of future generations get impacted by their environment and uh, this uh, genetic trauma and genetic dis disenfranchisement gets passed down through generations. Yeah, so the gene, a person's genes maybe don't, doesn't change per se, but definitely yeah. their children's genes. 
Thank you. Thank you for jumping in with the science clarification. Because, yeah. like, I get it in my head, but, like, don't know how to scientifically say it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I found that very interesting that he specifically said it doesn't have to do anything with our DNA. But it does. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It, it doesn't have to do anything with his, maybe his DNA specifically. Yeah, but, maybe he didn't have slave ancestors. Yeah, or... but but you know if he maybe you know, looked at uh, his uh, black neighborhoods and their children and their children's children will definitely be impacted by the fact that they are they may not have the right nutrition and they're exposed to different chemicals that rich neighborhoods never have to deal with. What other Opposition points. It's interesting that you guys are kind of hinting that there's a an accumulating health cost that has existed from the time of slavery through the Jim Crow era and even today continues to exist. So add that to your uh, trillion dollar equation. Yes, factor it in <laughs> at the very least. All the medical costs. What would that be? That's all my reasons against reparations that the Republicans came up with. Mostly just insulting African Americans by giving them money, That's dividing the country, dividing the country, saying it has nothing to do with our DNA, and the injustice of current taxpayers paying for previous government's wrongdoing. The most commonly cited reason. Yeah. So that's what they brought to the Senate floor to say, we don't want to even look at this bill to, to, to study any of this. Do you mm-hmm. have any other reasons why? No, we, uh, we covered all mine between you and me. Mm-hmm. So. Where's our hopeful Where story? Where is the hopeful story? <laughs> I have the hopeful story now. Okay. <laughs> if we're ready to end on our I am ready note. for hope. Okay. Okay, so... Georgetown University. It starts off bad. Don't don't uh, don't judge me quite yet. Okay, so Georgetown University, way 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 back in the 1800s, they had some issues with debt, and they needed to pay off their debt in order to keep going. And Georgetown is, I believe, one of the Ivy League schools. I don't know. You can correct me on this. They're a very large school. I don't know much about that, uh, but at the time they. They wanted to settle their debt and continue running this school. And so they sold off uh, 272 of their slaves because it was Jesuits who owned the school and uh, the Jesuits had a whole bunch of slaves. And so they sold off 272 of them uh, to help to pay for Georgetown's debts. And so in this sale, there were actually terms for that sale that said there would be no family separations. Uh, the proceeds of the sale wouldn't be going to pay the debt or operating expenses of the college, uh, and that the religious practices of the slaves would be supported. But none of those terms were met. So, you know, kids were ripped from their families and things like that. So in order to survive, Georgetown sold these slaves. And then it was just kind of forgotten about for a really long time. Uh, And then it came out this story came out about the slaves. And so the student body kind of came together and said, we want to help the people who are impacted by this because we're benefiting from it. We are going to this really good college and we're getting all of um, the really good, you know, education and Mm -hmm. opportunities that it provides. So we want to give back to those slaves who, who were here because of. And so they came together and said that they were going to vote on having a student fee, so about $27 per person, which would amount to 400000 in a fund uh, to help pay for uh, different things. It could have been maybe survivors of those slaves or ancestors of those slaves. It could be their education there. It could be uh, supporting their uh, endeavors in the community. It could be... Uh, supporting, you know, initiatives in schools and things like that. So it was this fund that would that acted like reparations mm-hmm. for the slaves that were sold from Georgetown University. Uh, and then they did pass that. So the student body passed that student fee, which is really great. I think that people coming together and saying, hey, the university is not going to act on this because the university was just saying, oh, we will change the admission requirements so that more of, so that if a survivor or, sorry, if a ancestor of the slaves that we sold applies to our university, it'll be like a legacy status. So you'll just get in 
immediately. But then, then how do these people pay for that education? And especially in the States where education is so expensive and the disparity between African-Americans and, and white people in terms of wealth is so wide, you know, how are they going to pay for this? So the students really came together and actually did something really positive um, that I think is, is really great. I think that's really hopeful that people are kind of coming together on their own and saying, these institutions, we can't rely on them to actually do the right thing. So we need to do the right thing. Unfortunately, I did read an article that was a bit more recent because uh, the university officials have to say like, oh yes, you can have this student fee and this fund. And they said that they would have this fund, but it would be like fun, uh, fundraising donation-based program instead of a student fee that students would be paying into, which has garnered a lot of criticism because obviously like you'll have more of a a regular income into this fund and you would know like you would always have that same amount like it's a stable income versus people who just want to donate so mm -hmm. um but i think it's i think it's really great that people are coming together and saying yeah we really need to do this small steps i'll yeah. cling to the hopeful aspects and yeah yeah that's a really great initiative yeah I thought it was hopeful. I think it was the only hopeful thing that I found out of all of this and really wanted to cling to it. <laughs> Grassroots and encouraging. I like it. Mm -hmm. Kenny, you look very... Don't put rain out. on it, Kenny. Don't <laughs> rain on it. <laughs> what have you got to say, Kenny? You can, you can offer up criticisms if that's no, what you're thinking. No, I, oh. I, I wasn't thinking about criticisms. <laughs> okay. I was just like... Oh, I was hoping for a better, <laughs> I know, better hopeful message. That's why I yeah. said it was good-ish because, like, it's the only, but it's the only hopeful thing that we've got. So yeah. we've got to start somewhere, and I think this is really great that a bunch of students came together mm -hmm. and said we are paying huge amounts for tuition, but here's an extra twenty dollars to just help those people that got oppressed because of the school. Yeah, and I, I think I mean the good thing as well as. It is now in conversation, like in our political conversations. So it'll probably still take a while before we get there. But I, I think it's a pretty important topic that we still need to kind of discuss. And we need to get more people educated on the topic and on board with potentially having to pay reparations, even though we all hate paying more taxes and et cetera, et cetera. But um, but at the same time, I think there's, again, paths where it's essentially paying reparations without paying reparations that we should explore in the short term to get people to immediately close the gap. It won't close the gap. I've, it never. But you have to it think about but... it. Like, like in terms of that university example where the students are just, they're just paying $20. Like you think like, okay, but that's... It was it was a student initiative as well, yes. right? So yes. I, it. I feel like if students are wanting this, but do you know how percentage-wise, or does it matter? Um, how, how I don't. Yeah. I don't. I know that it passed, yeah. so there must have been a majority. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, thinking about in terms of, like, $20. Like, I would pay $20 a year so that, you know, if everybody in Canada paid $20, we would have this huge fund that That's would go like towards... That's, like, two Starbucks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So to, to think about like, hey, I'm paying 20 bucks a year, but look at this, you know, ancestor of a slave who wasn't going to have those opportunities now gets those opportunities to actually thrive and, and bring themselves out of poverty. Like, I think that's such a great thing. Well, we'll get there. We will. And we're starting to get there. And yeah. that's the point that we are clinging to. <laughs> If the world doesn't end, so we'll see. <laughs> if we're not in civil war, then we're going to help reparations. Yeah. Well, I think we can wrap this up then. So yeah, I'm good for now. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we will chat next time. I don't know what topic we're talking about next time, but... We're going to make it a bit lighter. <laughs> we haven't decided, and that's, that's why, because we're trying to be like, what topic is light enough for next month? Find a nice light topic, and we'll be all over. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.
God, I hope this works. <laughs> okay. Oh no. Wait, I gotta, I gotta sync though. Three, two, one. Okay, good. Oh, cool. This is my, the only way I can merge the two audio streams together. Even though we've been <laughs> Don't told. Don't merge the streams. <laughs> Sometimes you have to merge the streams. 